I didn't, you do YouTube. I just love checking on your YouTube stuff because you see some truly like someone was saying, you know, Kane canceled Abel. Like, like you have <laughs> yeah, to be, Bobert. you have to be so through the looking glass to just be like, you know what? He did murder. Like he straight up murdered him. He's dead. But the idea that the overriding verb is like, he's canceled. Like he's in purgatory. <laughs> like, well, this sucks. How am I going to get my content out? You have to be so <laughs> deep in the sauce, which I guess that's sort of, uh, where we are uh as a country yeah. as america the book you wrote the god who riots uh gets into sort of what the fuck do we do with christianity where we are right now uh mm -hmm. it, it's sort of america focused but you know it incorporates yeah. i think a, a sort of a wider plan for where or where christianity can go i should say uh i'm rob at dumb and awful <laughs> this is a little <laughs> rusty this is damon garcia uh at who is damon uh before we get into the book, which by the way, it's it's so good. I saw, I know it's just like it's so good. It's the sort of thing that I wish I had growing up. Uh, like I'm sure your your literary agent is like, yes, more more of that. But that is like the absolute niche, you know. Like growing mm. up, I think you have a lot of questions uh, about, but like you, you start to get the dogma of religion piecemeal or overheard or asking questions about sermons or at church. And you start to go like, none of this really, this doesn't really make sense. You know, you start to have questions that don't have answers. Uh, and that produces a sense of dread because you're not supposed to have that. This book very much says like, no, 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 that's normal. Go, that that's part of the process. Let's figure yeah. it out and let's figure it out together. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. So I'm Damon. <laughs> and I, yeah, just wrote this book, The God Who Riots. And uh, yeah, I grew up in an evangelical church and I felt like I was called to ministry when I was 19 years old. But I took that as like, okay, well, this is a huge responsibility if we're going to be like teaching these big ideas and leading people. So I knew that I had to study this stuff out as much as possible. Started taking some Bible college classes, but What's funny about those textbooks they gave us is they would give us like, here's a wrong interpretation. Here's another wrong interpretation. Here's another wrong. And here's the right one. But the wrong interpretation, some of them ended up making more sense. And so I, they would just give me stuff to Google and research on my own and realize like, oh, yeah, this is way better than the answers they're expecting me to have. And so I just kept choosing to follow truth wherever I found it, which put me outside of their theological boundaries. And then in 2017, I left um, the evangelical church. And now I'm still a Christian, but I just am now inspired by the liter liberative stream throughout Christian history of those who have been empowered by their faith to fight for liberation. We're all very familiar with the other stream of institutional Christianity that has justified and preserved so much violence throughout history. But uh, I, I believe there's a way to reclaim the radical roots of this thing and fight against that with everyone else who's also trying to fight against Christian nationalism today. And yeah, I'm really happy that I was able to write this whole book. Yeah. I, maybe this is too personal. But you mentioned in the book, you're like, come to Jesus moment or like I need to look at spirituality was you had like a benzo OD or close call and you're like oh shit like this stuff is real is that that's basically what happened 
Oh, I can it's... actually die. I have mortality. Look, I, I don't really need to get into it. I just, as a Floridian reading that, I was like, there's my fucking youth pastor. Like, went too far on benzos, and now he's brought the good word back. Like, that's the ideal scenario. You mm-hmm. must have been... You must have been a pretty cool youth pastor. You can admit that, right? Like you talk about in the book. Yeah, but no benzos. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, no, by then. But I mean, like, just you had a life experience. Like every youth pastor I I knew, like ours, uh, really into acoustic guitar. And his big oh, selling yeah. point was he had a uh, icy freezy maker thing in his office. I don't. You talk big about selling point. That sounds like he's welcoming kids off the streets to be like, I have ices in here. That is sort of his job. <laughs> I know you talked about like you had to get you you dropped out of uh, of religion school and you had to get uh, like a youth pastor's license. I assume just picking up like one of those hobbies like model trains or or VHS is filled with like prices, right? Like just weird off putting uh, hobbies is part of it. The IC maker just it it sort of fit. Hmm. What do you have to do? Yeah, we did lock ins. Lock-ins, yeah, that's it. Somehow you started with, uh, you know, a, a bunch of children uh, in a church after dark and gave it a creepy title. <laughs> You're locked in. It always yeah, sounds. Like, I thought it was more exciting as a kid. I was just like the lock-in. What happens is like a haunted house. And it's like eh, mostly sing about Nicodemus. <laughs> At our lock-ins, we just played games all night long. Are we talking heads up, seven up? Are we talking four corners? Uh, what, what are we? A bunch of different group games. It was fun, but we had, um, we had a, a. I know other other churches have had lock ins, and they'll like, um, they'll like some kids are able to like get away from the group, and some people have a story of losing their virginity at lock ins. But the ones I went to, everyone stuck together, and nobody could just sneak away. So I don't know what that's like. Yeah, no, I was a sort of hardcore like fundamentalist christian sect where if someone started making out at the lock-in someone else would be like ungodly behavior like the flanders kids you get called yeah. out so I, I don't think a ton of that was going on our our uh most of our youth activities centered around the junior saints which is we made uh, like our youth pastor ran like a club like a little like gang for jesus called the junior saints and mostly wow. Uh, it was very like progressive Christian because mostly we just uh, thought about doing charity work, but ended up playing volleyball with the youth pastor and really just creating an in-group out group that didn't exist previously. <laughs> that was about it. Is that the sort of stuff you got up to or, or what's your day as a youth pastor back then? Uh, oh, man. Because it you're was, kind of doing fun. that now. That's what this book is, right? Like just in a more realized, better way. <laughs> like I feel like this book's target audience is people who are like questioning, who are young, who have political beliefs that don't align with sort of the conservative social mores of the church, uh, lowercase yeah. that they're in every Sunday, that sort of stuff. I think the, the only similarity would be that I've always just had a passion for helping people explore these spirit, big spiritual questions and find other sources outside of their bubble, outside of their typical circle of influence. Like I've been really inspired by liberation theology, which is a interpretive lens that was that started in Latin America in the 60s, where the central idea was that God has a preferential option for the poor. And so the church should too. And being able to find that kind of theology and black liberation theology and womanist theology and queer theology 
that that stuff I didn't grow up around at all. It was like I realized I grew up in a tiny corner of Christianity and finding all that like really set me free and um realize, oh yeah, this thing is way cooler, way bigger, way more complex than what I was raised with. And so that's what that's what I'm trying to help people do, realize like, oh yeah, there's so much more to this story. And I know a lot of people grew up in church feeling like Jesus was way more radical than what the people around them may have thought. And I'm like, yeah, your suspicions are correct. And there's a lot more. Yeah, this book is, I don't know, man. I just thought it was really great. Uh, it, it gets into that preference for the poor, like systematically. Like, what does yeah. that actually mean? Why does he have a preference for the poor? And what does that actually look like? And you get into sort of the idea of, of love and forgiveness and access to living uh, under not the kingdom of God, but like the reign of God. Access to living in a different way is available more to people who are poor because they feel oppression and because they uh, see humanity in each other and they build these bonds and they're more likely to live in accordance with the reign of God. But like the rich people, because they have sort of uh, they've dehumanized them. So they have to humanize themselves again before they can engage in that sort of dynamic. They're actually sort of in the reign of God further, more just, they need more work. You need liberatory struggle in a material sense to get rid of the conditions that have created a dehumanized uh, rich man and upper class that is obstructed from getting the love and grace of God. Is that sort of, that's sort of what I got out of it. Is that a, a close dumb guy reading? Oh, that's great. Yeah, for listeners, Rob just like strung together uh, ideas from like each chapter in that one thing he just said. I I like was able to catch. Oh yeah, that's in that chapter. That's in that chapter. That's in that chapter. Well, this is all you, very fresh. Like I read this you really book. Really read it. I read this book in <laughs> one sitting. Do you understand? Like, Ooh, I didn't is, know that. This is like the fifth book I've read in my life. And by the way, it, <laughs> it's still a book. You really wrote a fucking book. I mean, there there are sentences that have main <laughs> ideas, and then there are premises yeah. that, and then each. There's is even all, pronouns in there. My book has pronouns and chapters. There's cha- <laughs> and, and each one has to reinforce what the last one was and introduce new ideas. It's like it's like watching a <laughs> soccer game. Like it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad you did it. I don't. If I had to do that for ten minutes, my heart would explode. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was a long. Hard process, but we got through it. But it, it comes together really nicely. Um, you know, great text, but like the Council of Nicaea, I've reviewed the text and I just have some notes. You know, mostly, mostly great. I love some, there's some good uh, zingers, one liners. My favorite is, uh, I don't want, I don't want to give away everything, but, and I give quote, it away. horseshoe theory is actually the horse shit theory. No notes there. Perfect line. <laughs> Yeah, that's from one of my videos. That that's in the book. That that's definitely no, I, it's not. Is it? No. Oh my god! I, fuck. It should have been. Well, I look. I, I have the review Re- copy. The second edition that needs to make its way in. Okay. I guess. Okay. Well, I'll, I, no, I'll note that. I guess you've got other good ones in there. You got MLK, <laughs> an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Oh, yeah. You've got when I give to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why there why there are poor, they call me a communist. Yeah, how dare commander. Commander. I, yeah. and one thing that jumps out at me is this is unapologetically like a left book. Like like these yeah. quotes represent uh, a real materialist reading of how to live in a Christian manner and, and how a non-materialist reading of society is going to sort of doom your 
your attempts to live in a Christian manner because the sort of progressive idealism of if we all think the, the same way, things will be solved. That's not really the way the world works. So you were sort of spinning in place in a masturbatory, like theological experience uh, if we don't have any sort of systemic and material project mission analysis uh, plan for change. Uh, is that? Yeah, that's, that's a, as I found myself in more like progressive Christian spaces, it seemed like that was the idea. It was very idealist where it's like, we have all the right ideas and all the right interpretations in our head and we're going to change things by getting more people to have the right ideas in their head. But that's not how change happens historically. We need to change the material conditions, abolish the systems that our ideologies are justifying and preserving so that we may open up space to think differently. And so like I, I talk about how that happened with abolition of slavery. During slavery, the majority of Christian churches were in support of slavery. There were plenty of abolitionist Christians, and and also there were a lot of denominational splits over the issue. But it was only after the abolition of slavery that people were able to say, "Oh yeah, of course God is against slavery," is because they needed it needed to be abolished to open up space for new ideas. Yeah, uh, and but- so that's why I try to prioritize. Like we need to change. The conditions and i'm really glad you you saw that in there in the materialist perspective and what's funny is um labor kyle you know labor kyle i know homie? i know and love labor kyle yes labor kyle is great there was one point where i was in the editing phase and as i was reading through the book i felt like i don't know some of these parts feel like it may be idealist and it's like there is some idealism in there mixed in but i didn't want it to be like the grounding and so i I messaged him like so anxiously and nervous and said, like, I feel like this is my problem. When I talk about this, it feels too ideal. And then all he said was just like one sentence. He's like, I think you just need to change the tense in some of your sentences. That's all. What he didn't it, even read any of what's it. He, he, what's said, he mean by that? The tense as in like, I changed. So I was like, oh yeah, instead of it is blank, it can be blank. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like that's it. And I was like, oh yeah, that does solve it. And so it was hilarious how he's, he was able to help me with just that basic note. That's a beautiful dude's rock moment. That you know, <laughs> you can call your boy and be like, oh, bro, labor Kyle, man, I'm afraid my analysis is too idealist. It's making me anxious. <laughs> what I do, and it's like, hey, bro, change the tense, and and you're, <laughs> you're ideologically fine. But no, like yeah. you, you I, all this stuff comes across, and again, it, it's a quick read, one sitting. I think it's like 180 pages, something like uh, ish. I'm sure it'll be not exactly that, but yeah, you talk about the order of myth-making and ideology uh, with regards to creating space for more liberatory politics and religion or religious practices. You say uh, the order is really important here. Oppression precedes the ideology that justifies oppression. So Christian teachings that justify oppressive institutions will remain the norm as long as these oppressive institutions exist. Christian teachings that empower our fight for liberation can only have space to become the norm after the abolition of these oppressive institutions. So yeah, just the idea of making space for, for change, because that's how the way, that's how history actually works is there's like Mm -hmm. a material thrust. And then after the the fact, we backfill in the ideologies, whether it's uh, otherization or, or, you know, white versus black, the pagan versus Christian, whatever it is. Or the slavery argument, we we backfill it, right? 
So, and I think it'll that continues to happen. And some people think when one day we do have a communist society, then religion will wither away. But I don't think it will wither away. I think it'll just tra- transition into something else. A hell of a lot of Christian institutions will definitely wither away or actively be destroyed. But religion will survive. Christianity will survive. And it'll enter a phase of religious experimentation that will reflect the new values of the new society. I read a book. It's so exciting. <laughs> you know, like I've, I've read four or five and on top of, and normally you just get the perk of bragging about it for the rest of your life, which I'm definitely going to do. Right. It's like people that read like Vonnegut or Ayn Rand. And now that's like their one reference. They, they read grapes of wrath. And, and now there's that I'm going to quote this forever, but I have the added wow. perk now that I get to just ask you about the parts I didn't understand. I dog-eared oh, the yeah. fuck out of this thing. So I'm going to take advantage of it. And I, again, I thank you for making time for me here. Yeah, let's go as as deep as you want. Yeah, you uh, you talk about uh, with the structural stuff, you have this quote where you say, I, progressive Christians are very happy to say, I believe black lives matter, but I don't want to eliminate the institutions that were built and are continually funded to destroy black lives. Right? <laughs> Essentially saying, like, I have a mind palace here. <laughs> <laughs> And in theory, your change is good, but I want to keep all the things that make that change necessary because of our shit status quo. What's the problem with sort of uh, progressivism or progressive Christianity in general? Because uh, the way I see it, there's like the idealism there, but also you talk about this in the book. Um, There's sort of a materialist reading of how progressive Christianity as a whole is stuck in these oppressive structures. You say associate pastors would tell you, I don't think there's as many people thinking about uh, the stuff you're thinking about as you think there are, right? Like like he was critiquing your questioning and your sort of viewing Christianity in a more liberatory lens as like non-relatable content, which seems like almost villainous. You know, it seems like deranged and villainous in one context. But when you think about it in sort of like a liberal, getting away from the idealist stuff, an actual materialist reading, like, You said some of these churches, the ones that are doing good, some amount of good, are trying to reduce harms in their community. They're a a central node in their community. They're a partner in their community. They become a fulcrum point for a lot of things, right? I mean, the the pastor's doing food banks. He's he's sitting with the dead. He's doing all that sort of stuff, right? Doing the the day-to-day stuff that being a pastor really is, uh, other than just like for three hours reading a printed-out sermon uh, every Sunday. But if you have a, a... progressive liberal reformist church that is embedded in the community and doing good work suddenly anything that keeps the lights on is incentivized and is a moral good right so there are material dynamics keeping this person interested in providing relatable non-questioning content because the good that they're doing in the community comes from the offering and the audience that they can build here like bigger more likes equals better moral outcomes, uh, ergo, we never move into a, an abolitionist way of viewing these institutions. It's always just reform because right now we yeah. got something that kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, there's a lot of critique of reform throughout the book. And and I talk about like the link between progressivism and colonial Christianity because the I mean, the the justifying ideology of colonialism originally was the classification of Christians and pagans. 
and pagans or non-Christians didn't have the same laws or rights that, um, according to Christians. And so they viewed the Christians viewed themselves as able to legally take their land, exploit their people, enslave their people because they're not Christians. So it doesn't count. There were some extremely, uh, what I think right-wing teenagers would call based bulls uh, coming out of some of these popes that you referenced there, where they are just like, there's no mask on for the papacy. They're just like, these guys are pagans, steal all their shit and bring it back for the glory of God. Like just right on the page. Like there's no nuance. Why the fuck would there be, right? Yeah. And so as the black and indigenous slaves and uh, workers that they exploited started to become Christians, they needed a new justification. And that eventually led to the development of this idea of whiteness, where it's like, okay, all of us, various European culture, Western European cultures, the British, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, we're all just white now. And everybody else, all you guys here, you're just black now. And it's like, so when we critique whiteness, we're critiquing that double cultural erasure instead of realizing like, oh, yeah, there's the reason that these are all clumped together is to justify exploitation. And so this idea of we, we need to go and reach these savages and convert them is an idea that continues and has spread out of Christianity, where it's not just in Christianity. Now you see it. And, and I talk about a few examples, but one of them is in progressivism, where which came from the Enlightenment, which was saying, like, because we need to move toward a more civilized and rational society, we need to be for these issues and against these issues, unlike those savage, primitive societies that aren't morally where we're at yet. Yeah, there was. And so it, sorry, it always yeah. paints the these people in colonized lands is the the primitive version. We used to be like that. And now we're here instead of, un- and, and yet those colonized ind- indigenous tribes that were exploited, didn't get to explain their own faith or spirituality or culture. And this I- idea of like, Oh yeah, they're living primitively. And before we used to be like that was just kind of adopted by a lot of enlightenment philosophers without fully questioning it. And, so yeah, and so it's interesting and with today's progressives, even though uh, 21st century progressives and 20th century progressives definitely have different um, issues and values, but that spirit is still there, which is like, we need to be against these injustices because we're more civilized and more rational. And I even think of uh, Hillary Clinton calling Trump supporters deplorables. It's like, oh, yeah, you guys are stuck regressive back then. You're not ahead like us, which has been terrible for like politics and, and like made at all these like somewhat left leaning people uh, seem pretentious and elitist. And now we we're in this mess where right wingers talk a lot about the elites when they really just mean people who act elitist and they're not really talking about the elites like we want them to. The, it, it's funny that like the the progressive 
theologians or the, the, the progressive anthropologists, the progressive Christian scholars would look at other religions and see them as primitive. You talk about like part of the, the thing you want to reclaim about your religion is this connection to nature, connection to ancestors, uh, sort of practices that are considered fetishistic uh, religious behavior by academics in the Enlightenment, who with good intentions were like, well, there's what we do, which is the higher order. And then there's these primitive places. Uh, and there's sort of a, you talk about a, 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 the, the nature as being savage and sort of sinful uh, if people aren't cultivating it to its highest expression. That, that's a sort of sin against God. That's like a sloth. That's like laziness. And so these progressive religious thinkers would see uh, non-European religious practices and cultivation of land and technology and be like, we're actually doing them a favor by colonizing mm -hmm. them there, right? It, it has, uh, I think, analogs to people now being like, well, we're bringing, we, we want people in X foreign country to be able to learn to code and, and, and you know, all these like liberal ideas about uh, progressing from a primitive state to the other. I think it nicely mirrors what you talked about where Christian colonialism or, or whatever the word may be, that, that's white Christian ideology was the religious version of the secular white supremacy that we have now. Like we killed God, but we still kept this otherization here. Like the religious one predated what we have now. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. It's like uh, white supremacy is an evolution of those Christian colonial justifications. And, um, and I think it, the thing is, I'm a Christian saying this. So it's like, I think people are used to, if this ever gets talked about at all, being talked about by like very anti-Christian atheists. And yet I feel like, first of all, this is just the history of ideas here that we're looking at. And secondly, I'm not talking about this stuff so we can despair or just be deep in sorrow at all the bad things Christians have done. I want to help people who are either Christian or associated with Christianity or, in, or, or are into Jesus realize um, here are the points in history where things developed and shifted and justified so much violence, which lets us know that they can be changed. If we know when it started, we can imagine its end. Not, and instead of this idea that, oh, it's in our heart, like there's a lot of like, oh, man, a lot of evangelical pastors have said uh, um, with ra racism, what would they say? I think they said something like, oh, yeah, it's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. Or they would say it's not a race issue. It's a heart issue where <laughs> it's like it's something inside you where it's like, no, there we could look at the development of um, different things ideas and violence that led to racism and end it, do something about it's it. It's like homosexuality. It's like, you know, if you don't indulge in those urges, if you just don't do racism and you don't think about it, it would go away. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you talk about that uh, perspective in the book and, and both sides, the, the sort of right and liberal left do that sort of stuff. The right's just like, well, if we didn't focus on it, as much, then we wouldn't have the problem if we all just decided to forgive on three. We all forgive and we move on. Everything will be good. And then the other side, it's just like, if we just constantly talk about it, uh, if we be become like modern 
modern American Essenes just just fastidiously <laughs> cleansing ourselves with, with uh, ritual after ritual in, in the presence of our great sin, uh, then it'll be fine. But each is, are just thinking. They're just doing thoughts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Thinking and tweeting. And in the meantime, our, our oppressive systems uh, move on going unchanged. Which, by the way, you have a solution to. I, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to excerpt just like maybe two paragraphs here. Is that cool? Yeah, let's get it. When I say that you really provide a, a theory of change in this book, page 13, right up at the front. We're, we're not even... <laughs> You're still, your chair doesn't even feel comfortable yet. You're still like settling <laughs> in, you know, there's now condensation yeah. on your drink. You're handling that. We just started and you hit us with how the world changes. This is an excerpt here. This is how historical change works. A new world becomes desirable when people experience the constraints of the current world. Just like a new way of life becomes desirable when you personally run into the constraints of your current way of life. Then the conditions of a new world emerge as a solution to the problems caused by the constraints of the previous world. While it is always preferable to peacefully replace the conditions of the current world with a new one, this process is always met with conflict. That conflict comes from those who significantly benefit from the conditions of the current world, those with power. Those without power are always the first ones to experience the constraints of the conditions of the current world as a result of poverty and discrimination. The process of transitioning to a new world begins with these people's dissatisfaction. Initially, the constraints are ignored because not everyone else has experienced them yet. As the current world remains unchanged, more and more people begin to experience its constraints. As more and more people have this experience, they become stronger by uniting with others who share the same experience. Inevitably, the dissatisfied people of society organize, protest, revolt, and win this conflict. Then they develop a new world. This process is never a singular moment toward a final stage of utopia. This process happens again and again throughout history, beginning again when people inevitably experience the constraints of the new world. You just really unapologetically hit them with that, uh, was it historical, materialist, Hegel, yeah. dialectic shit? You just went right <laughs> up, just warn it. Like, I'm not going to use any of the scary words, but... Uh, yeah. Here we are. This is how the world works. I think that's an excellent explanation. Of... Wow, thank you. <laughs> well, it's an excellent crypto. You you snuck under the radar. You stealth fightered uh, some socialist theory in there. But I, I do think that's correct. And that's sort, that informs your view of sort of political change and also any hope for religious change. Yeah? Yeah. Like the Marxism feels like a big part of it. I mean, it's a huge part. This, this is a feels like this idea this spirituality is built or at least the journey you took is built on marxist ideology like that provided the basic framework by which you were able to look at institutions is that wrong i mean yeah well yeah marxism has been a huge tool i i was gonna say um mm -hmm. when i was writing it i i was thinking of spiral have you heard of spiral dynamics no hit me from don Beck. sounds awesome <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like an ability you would have in a japanese mmo you, yeah. you have to work if you have enough stacks of spiral dynamics you can soak the tank buster yeah but it's like this sort of psychological theory of how we grow and change and go through various stages of consciousness um and i some of it is cool some of it is whack but I do like the how they talk about the way people change, which, which is like running into the limitations of your current worldview. 
And then the next stage arise, emerges as a solution to the problems you now have. And so I, I was trying to like mix that a bit with uh, yeah historical materialism and show people that we can't think our way into new new selves and we can't think our way into new societies and that's that's the thing too i was like i was really trying to combat that idea because there's some people i mean there's this one guy who talked about a, a lot about spiral dynamics and also related it with history and when he got to the enlightenment part he said and and suddenly literally suddenly all these people changed their minds about slavery and w realized it was wrong and ended slavery. So this was, is an example of a shift in consciousness and history. But first of all, those <laughs> who were enslaved always knew slavery was wrong. Yeah. Second of all, it didn't, it, it, we only got to the abolition because slaves kept revolting and a war happened and that's how it, 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 people shifted their minds. And so it's like there, there's a lot of spiritual teachers out there that will talk about history in a way of like they shifted their consciousness where it's like, yeah, their consciousness did shift, but you have to look at the material conditions that made it shift. And that is a huge part that we have to consider, especially if we talk to people about like how we should be spiritual today and compare it to other spiritual teachers of the past, like we have to acknowledge, okay, what are our material conditions right now, though, and what were theirs, and how is that different? What can be some similarities? How how can we do it different? It's like, yeah, I, f I feel like, especially in progressive Christian circles, it's there's a lot of idealism, and I feel like materialism really has helped me combat some of those ideas in a way that makes sense to a lot of these people, and. Um, I, I feel like when I part of the goal of the book too was to write a book for those progressive Christians to get them to stretch a bit further, realize yeah. there's a lot more here. I, I, um, that, that's sort it's of, for other people too. That, yeah. that, uh, you call out this sort of uneven sense of imagination that progressive Christians have. Like on the one hand, their imagination is big enough to be like, if we just get enough spirit energy and everyone's brain is on the same wavelength with regards to certain moral decisions, if we all watch the same TV show and we vote with, with enough, if we have enough consensus, that'll change the world. It's like, that. Oh, yeah, that's what, that sounds like some Dragon Ball Z thing, but it's actually your solution to like slavery, right? Or, or <laughs> and so they'll, they'll be out there, you know, big imagination there. But then when it comes to, uh, abolitionist thinking it's like whoa 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 that's that's a bit radical don't you think like can't can't we be a little realistic and it's just like bitch you believe in transubstantiation yes like yes, what do you yes. mean you, you say that we should ask uh, what institutions exist to maintain that divide between the first and the last what institutions would jesus seek to abolish in order for the reign of god to emerge like yeah it, it if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, if you engage with Christianity at all, that should be the question, obviously, that you are asking. And how is it that that is where imagination fails other than the convenience of it for everyone's own uh, sense of self? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's a big deal. I, I talk a lot about how if, if we believe that 
this whole thing is headed toward the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things, which is what the New Testament talks a lot about, then we should be open to the most radically ex- expansive alternatives to our injustice that we're facing today. And yet, uh, yeah, like you said, there's so many progressive Christians that are like, no, that's too extreme. It's too impractical. Let's just give more money to the police. Let's just uh, try to have cooler capitalism or whatever. And it's like, um, Jesus was an abolitionist. Jesus was a revolutionary, not a reformist. And people kind of forget that Jesus and his followers, as well as plenty of Jews in the first century, fully believed God would destroy the Roman Empire. Yeah. And they didn't think that they could just uh, vote to get some better policies in place to reduce a little bit of harm. What they knew was that the only way to liberation is if the Roman Empire comes down. And what Jesus was interested in was teaching people about a new way to live and relate to one another after the empire is destroyed and giving people a new set of values to live by in a liberated society. When you say destroyed, you mean uh, abolished, right? When the structure is preventing people from living in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the the, the way that is godly and and infused with love, as it were, it it might be one way to characterize it. once those things are abolished, destroyed, then this is how the new will be shaped. Exactly. And unfortunately, um, more empires came into place after the fall of Rome, empire after empire. Now we find ourselves under the American empire. And I feel like um, that those words are still inspiring to me and to plenty of people to, to look at, okay, this is our situation. This is the status quo. And yet we believe in a radical vision where the first must become last and the last must become first, as Jesus taught when he talked about the kingdom of God. And there's a vision of a liberated world where that we can work toward. And so I, I love talking about different abolitionist groups and abolitionist ideas and how some people get scared in those conversations and feel like, oh, they're just like pessimistic or they're just like um, too extreme or they don't want to work with us. But it's like, what do you mean? Pessimistic? No, we just, what did you say? What do you mean? Pessimistic? Oh, by pretty much saying like, well, this isn't, this will never work. Like your abolition or any reform will never work. Um, But it's like, we need that kind of, we need, first of all, there's a kind of pessimism that discourages us from doing any work at all, and that must be avoided. But there is another kind of pessimism that encourages us to build something new because we have no hope in this system as it is getting better. And so I call for people to have that type of pessimism in the book. And it's like, and I wanted to say too that it isn't just about destroying things and um, tearing things down, but it's about living into the values of a new world, cr- resourcing our communities better, which are the only reformist policies we should support is ones that gives funding and resources to our communities, not to the police. And by doing that, we're building a world so that we don't need police, prisons, surveillance. And so... Yeah, you said police came out of the material building. conditions of 
what the 1700s, 1800s. Yeah. So logically, it makes sense that a change in material conditions would impact the change in the need, air quote, for that sort of oppressive force, right? That's the argument. Yeah, they only came into place um, first in Britain in response to striking workers, because before that, all they had was were soldiers to bring out and kill people, but they didn't want to kill their workers because they needed their labor. And so they it's like, all right, let's get a group together that will just beat people up a bit. By and the way, that was the first police. I, force. I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know how recent police uh, forces were, you know, that it's only a, a couple hundred years, years old. And I actually got nostalgic uh, because you were like, yeah, they wanted a, a force of people that could non-lethally beat up uh, oppressed people and workers. I was just like, non-lethally? That would be a step forward. <laughs> for a moment, I was like, oh, yeah. okay, not so bad. Yeah, and, and then like New York had one for to deal with the draft riots or so. Or what was it like? Yeah. All, all this stuff is relatively new. Uh, yeah, and then in the South, it just evolved from the slave patrol. And so... Um, so, so both in the North and the South was in response to people revolting and trying to be liberated. Yeah. You say that, uh, police budgets expand because our sort of prison industrial complex here. The only way we know to deal with, uh, social, political, material issues in the country is just incarcerate. Yeah. Like, and so that, so when communities oftentimes that have high crime are like, uh, hey, we would like more police. What they leave out there is they'd also like more schools and social services and medical care and all this mm-hmm. stuff that would uh, you know, ameliorate the need for that in the first place. But in this country, no, yeah. you just get more prison and police budget. You know? Yeah, it's awful. It's not good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like, oh man, what I, what I really would like to get like every Christian to understand is the the mission of the reign of God is to flip that power dynamic where the first become last and last become first. And so when we have institutions in place that keep the first first and the last last, such as the prison industrial complex, then that we must acknowledge that mission is antithetical to what we're trying to do. And so, yeah, I I really, (laughs) I really wish we can get people to see that. And I think there's a lot of Christians right now who are feeling that, but don't know how to articulate it. And it's mostly because they grew up so isolated from these different radical ideas, as we all do in the United States. And yeah, I want to help people uh, expand a bit there. But ultimately, we need to work together, all of us, in order to um, bring about the world we need. You have a, a my one of my favorite quotes here. You, you talk about how Jesus... You know, in talking about how, how the structures of society that benefit the wealthy bring them further away from, like, the grace of God. And Jesus at one point says, Truly I tell to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. Uh, by the way, a little catty. I, I don't know what version of the Bible you used for the quotes in there, but I, I like. there's a bit more poetic. It wasn't the New International Version, uh, that, that slop. 
there, there's some texture to the the Bible verses you quoted there, and I do appreciate Jesus's caddy. Like, truly, I tell to you, <laughs> like he's just fed up in the same way he was fed truly, up. Truly, truly, he's fed up with the fig, the fig leaf tree, or whatever. <laughs> he's walking on down the road, and he sees a, a fig tree with leaves on. He's like, I'm gonna give it a look. There's nothing up there, and he's like, Truly, you will never bear fruit again. And it's like, what did that fig leaf do to you? Jesus in this book comes off a, a little bit annoyed <laughs> at a lot of things. Um, mm. sorry, it's just a tan tangent, but like, there's another one where a woman comes up and it's like, my daughter's terrible. Can you take a look at her? And Jesus is like, no, I'm busy. You dog. <laughs> and she's like, Hey, dogs eat scraps. And he's like, that's brilliant. You've owned me in debate. I'll heal your daughter. <laughs> like what? Have you noticed that? But yeah, he seems way more Jesus human. was human. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like he gets Jesus annoyed at things. He goes, aha, what about this? And then just some lady will zing him and it'll be like, all right, point taken. Have a great day. <laughs> yeah, he was teachable, of course, because he was human. And I, I love this. I heard from a friend that they're in um, a theology class or whatever. And the teacher was talking about that story where Jesus is being tempted by Satan and saying, uh, jump off this cliff. And if, if an angels will catch you, if you really are who you say you are, blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't, he doesn't give into the temptation. And then the teacher said, the reason he doesn't jump is because he would have died if he jumped down there like anybody else. Yeah, re- and that was just like, in that context was just hilarious. Cause sometimes in that context, we could talk about like philosophize it too much and be like, what was the real reason he didn't listen and jump in that exact moment, even though he could have, it's like, no, he didn't jump cause he would have died. Cause he was human. He, he, it, he definitely comes across as more of a, a dude in here. I was a little bit, uh, again, tangent, but I was a little bit shocked by that story with the Canaanite woman. Uh, Canaanite means yeah. Palestinian, right? Uh, no. No, okay. I, it's I a, that was in in another area. translation, it says Syrophesian. Um, so Syrophesian, Canaanite, Canaan. With Israelites also came from Canaan. Okay. But um, well, in any case, the... But it, go ahead. Yeah. It, it was like a cultural and national difference. But the... Yeah, Jews had called in the first century, referred to Gentiles sometimes uh, as an insult uh with dogs and so yeah in that story canaanite woman goes to jesus says my daughter is sick can you heal her and she and he says uh like i've only come to bring food to the children not the dogs like the, this i'm here for the other jews like me and then she says well even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table and like you said he's like oh snap you got me and then he's like all right your faith is great and i will heal you and in your daughter and so it's like I think that's that's really interesting too, and I compare it to today the ways that colonized and marginalized peoples have reshaped the faith. It was given to them as oppressive, and then they dug into the um, Bible and the theological concepts and the symbols and realized, oh wait, this God is actually on our side against people like you who try to force it on us. And what they end up doing is. Um, is reshaping the faith and making Jesus ours instead. And I, uh, yeah, so I, I see that that relationship with God and humans continues where God isn't this like, I, I really don't see God as a static, unchanging being, but God is in relationship with the world, being affected by the world, being impacted by our actions. And we go back and forth like that. 
and it's and it's in real time. There isn't some big plan that God is just turning pages of the his, book of history on. It's it's God is experiencing all of this with us, luring us to create a better world. That's an that's an interesting way of of looking at God and Jesus there, because I was like genuinely taken aback, where it's like. Uh, Jesus being like, hey, I don't have time. I don't have time to be Jesus for you dogs, you you non Jewish people. It's just like, bestie, you may want to delete that. Like Jesus does a bad tweet and then learns, oh shit, I, I guess I better not do that. Although I have to say, all that makes sense. That's strike one. I'm looking at the the Good Samaritan story a little suspect now. Mm. You know, I, I, you explain it in the book, and you could talk a little bit about the what that story is communicating but i'm just saying calling non-jewish people dogs he has another parable that's just like imagine this we got a levite we got a priest and then some dirty ass samaritans on the road <laughs> this motherfucker yeah. on his donkey and you probably think oh you see him bending down to, to help the guy he's probably robbing him nope that's what i thought too me jesus but it <laughs> turns out he's helping him out you know wild and what do we learn from this and what did we learn from from the dude Jesus in that one, because you include that that parable, uh, you don't include many, but you include that one in in the book. What do, what do we take yeah. away from that? There's a couple things to take away. One, like you're definitely referring to right now, is identity doesn't determine goodness just because you've got a disposition in society where you're supposed to be considered to help people doesn't mean that you're actually doing it. And also goodness transcends identity. And so there are people who we may think, oh yeah, they're definitely not going to help anybody or they're unrighteous, whatever. And yet they're the ones who actually see the need and take care of it. And then I love uh, the way MLK read that parable because the the parable is also used to talk about being a good Samaritan. Like when you see someone who needs help, be a good Samaritan and stop, even though anyone everyone else is passing by and MLK says stopping and helping someone on the side of the road is only the initial act, Mm -hmm. but we must restructure a society that keeps producing people who are beating, who are beaten on the side of the road. And then even with beggars, yeah, we, we should help a beggar, uh, when we see him, but we also must restructure the system that produces beggars. And so it's like, that's how, that's how we really be a good <laughs> Samaritan. That's how we really be good is instead of just charity, we need liberation. That idea of goodness transcending identity seems like uh, pretty obvious but in a time of mm-hmm. i mean that that wasn't i was surprised when you talk about calvinism here i mean that that wasn't to be taken for granted i mean you when you write about calvinism here which initially was progressive right it was saying uh compared to like the in, in some ways yeah 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 uh uh you say in the book the protestant doctrine of unconditional election was supposed to give christians certainty that they are loved valued and blessed by god just as they are and not for their usefulness to the church. The problem of this doctrine arises when you wonder about everyone else. Um, like it is kind of like a oh step forward. We don't have to worry about uh, you know earning our way into heaven. We're already we're already elect. Sucks for everybody else. 
<laughs> you say our natural inclination would be to assume God hates, devalues, and curses everyone else simply because of who they are, no matter what they do. Yeah, when you talk about a God who sets a plan and then he's turning the pages of the book, pretty fucked up that he left some people in like islands on Papua New Guinea that are never going to get Christ and just get owned. Yeah. Also pretty fucked up yeah. that uh, he made some of us elect and not others and said, hey, uh, y'all figure it out. Figure out who's blessed. And and all we really have to go on is, well, I guess whoever has the biggest house is, I guess whatever <sighs> happens is proof that that was the right thing to happen. Uh, the Calvinist reading, sort of a pain in the ass. And so the 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 you need to look at goodness and and removing harm separate from identity, probably a good thing. But this was a, uh, Calvinism was a step forward originally, you say in the book. Yeah, and that, that's uh, where the Protestant work ethic comes from, mm. is um, this idea, because yeah, the specifically in uh, what became the United States, the Puritans were Calvinist. And yeah, Calvin developed this theology that was different than Catholicism that he he and other reformers grew up with and um that was one of the the things that was important to him to say unconditional election and yet when the centuries later when the puritans came over they um they justified their exploitation and enslavement of the people there by saying well they're just the non-elect we're the elect they must be the non-elect so it's okay we can get rid of as much as we want. And so anywhere we show up where they're not already yeah. Christians, that's now a freebie because God, exactly. if, look, if God wanted them to live in heaven or on earth, you know, may his kingdom come, they would already be Christians, but they're not. So fuck them. That's how we get Goliath having like six toes, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like that. Yeah. That's the other rising tactic, which exists in plenty of cultures which which is like uh, describing foreign peoples with these otherworldly in unhuman um characteristics and and you see that in the bible sometimes too the people they're battling and describes giants with uh more fingers than they should have and things like that and so as um as the people that they're exploiting and enslaving started to become christian they they needed to figure out okay how do we determine who is god's elect and who isn't and so they ended up coming with coming up with okay let's look just look at wealth and property if somebody has wealth and property that's a sign that they're god's elect if they don't then they're not and then it so so then they started saying if you work hard enough then and get wealth and property then that is a sign you're one of the elect but if your hard work does not result in that, then it's your fault. It's on you. And so that that's the Protestant work ethic, which um, helped develop the ideologies that would justify capitalism. And so it's like, a, it's, it's so interesting to, to see that whenever we have this idea within religion of, well, there's a big group of people that are in and a big group of people that are out, it will always be used to justify exploitation. And so in the book, I talk about, let's keep this idea of like, we're, we're all, we're, we are in, we are favored by God, we are loved by God, we are blessed by God, no matter what, but let's apply that to all humans and all creation. It's like, that's how God feels about all of us. 
And so and there's a long line of Christian thinkers who said things like that since the very beginning. And so I can, oh man, oh, Augustine has like this Augustine throwaway shit, line. Yeah. Augustine has this throwaway line in the fourth, fifth century, something like that. I think it was August, someone or early, some other early church father, maybe just says the majority of Christians are universalists. They believe that everyone will be saved. And he was just describing like the different groups he was interacting with. Um, but that's interesting. There was a point in time where they all believe. And the thing, the popular universalist idea back then was that hell existed, but it just burned away your sin instead of burning sinners. And then we, Damn, we got that's a pretty good system. Purified. That, thanks it, for that, yeah. Lucifer, Morningstar. What I don't know if that's that might be from the the TV show Supernatural, but I think that's his name, right? Something like that. But uh, but yeah, so so it's like I only bring that up to say the stuff I'm saying isn't exactly new. Like I'm not some guy being like I think I can make Christianity better. Let me let's come up with some new stuff. It's like no, I'm just tapping into. Uh, different streams with that throughout Christian Christianity rooted in the perspective of the poor and oppressed that have reshaped the faith. And um, yeah, I don't think I say much new in my book. It, the only new stuff is applying it to new contexts. Yeah. Also one thing where you talk about reshaping the faith uh, sort of bottom up from the practices of the oppressed and from the spiritual practices that have been sort of taken away from the people oppressed by the modern white, uh, traditional Christianity. Talk about, again, bringing back more ancestor stuff, bringing back a, a reintegration of nature into religious practice. Uh, my question there is, uh, why? Nature sucks, there's mosquitoes. Uh, how, how would a, a, a religious practice that venerates nature or has a, a, an interaction, a meaningful, conscious interaction with nature be radical as opposed to, you know, the modern uh, settler Christianity, white supremacist Christianity that we have today, the mainline church, how to be different from their dynamic with regard to nature. Because that is a line you put in there. You're like, I needed to, I was praying inside uh, the building of the church. I needed to go outside in order to feel like God could hear me better. <laughs> yeah. I had to be in uh, one church that I was uh, working at. There was, Every Sunday morning, we had to go in there extra early and do these prayers. And a lot of people were praying that um, God come into this place, meet people here in this place. But I, I just kept getting this thought in my head of like, God isn't in here. God's out there. And this isn't, and, and they're not coming from a godless world. They're coming from a God-soaked world. And they're bringing God in here. The people do. And so, yeah, I talk about the 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 fact that a lot of indigenous spirituality in the Americas and Africa were demonized, and they they were reduced to like this supernatural, primitive uh, irrationalism, and a lot of it was destroyed and taken from us. And so, I talk about how I've been inspired by seeing black uh, Christians, indigenous Christians, and Latino Christians be able to reclaim some of those uh, elements of indigenous spirituality. And I see like part of it is being in touch with nature 
in, in a way that doesn't demonize nature. It's, it's, it's not like, oh, yeah, we're the sacred beings connected to the sacred God. And then here's the worldly world. It's like, no, the world and creation is sacred, too. And also being able to connect with our ancestors, realizing that our ancestors are a part of this. Those who have come before us are still a part of the moment we are living in. And we can look back and gain some of their wisdom. And yet a lot of the Christian colonizers said, oh, no, they're in hell. They're, they're, they weren't they're like and and I've, I'm seeing a lot of people now saying, no, fuck that. Like they're a part of my faith, even though I am a Christian, they're a part of my faith, too. And then even um, I'm personally been seeing a lot in uh, Mexican-American culture and, and in Mexico, the, the use of sacred objects, yeah, the building these shrines, back, right? They're having a different relation to material objects. Yeah, but it's like, I think some of us can think, oh, wow, they're they're like dumb because they think these objects have power. But it's like there is something sacred to building or having these material objects that call to mind beautiful, sacred ideas, putting them all in one place, lighting some candles, being in the presence of that and experiencing the presence of that in that moment. That does something to you like physiologically like you wouldn't we don't even have to talk about god or spirituality or supernaturalism it's like that does something to you and it, it could even be grounding it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a detaching you from the world and and your spiritual practice but it can there are plenty of spiritual practices that can ground you to the world and i think what's so refreshing about that for me is this engagement with the world with the earth with humans with bodies skin dirt as opposed to this spirituality it's all about heaven and spirit and uh dreams and it's like i we're connected here this is the embodied incarnation of god right here in front of me and right here in front of you that's what i'm more about and a lot of a lot of people are you talk about uh you got sick of hearing all about the death of christ and wanted to hear about some some living of christ like what's it all about uh, by the way, I, I think the use of sort of setting aside material objects for spiritual practice, you get into this in the book, but literally it, it, that makes sense. That's good. Uh, and as much as it is a uh, a marker that people are reclaiming their traditional spiritual practices and incorporating them in, into a faith that they find like, you know, useful and community building and all that. But you define holy, literally the act of setting it aside is what makes it holy right like isn't that the definition of holy used in in the book like it's a setting aside of that it, it's taking an object out of the material dynamics of transaction and giving it a special mm -hmm. meaning that allows you to focus uh, on something other than sort of the economics of exchange it changes the nature of the thing you transubstantiate uh that candle with the Virgin Mary on it from a dollar ninety nine product at Publix to a, a focus for spiritual awakening. I, I like that. I think that makes sense. I think that's cool. Yeah, I think it's really cool too. And um and I talk about how like we do that with ourselves. Like when the Bible talks about Sabbath, holy day, apart from the other days that are reserved from work, it's like being able to reclaim that is extremely important because imagine if we all had that if we all had a day where that was set apart where we were reminded of our actual value instead of 
at work where we're reminded that our value comes from our labor power and how useful we are to the system of endless production and endless profit. But when we could set it, set some time apart and say, I am good just inherently. I am valuable inherently. I'm sacred inherently. I'm loved inherently. Then I think that stretches our imagination. And what I hope people who are into spiritual practice, like practices like this can discover is that if we really believe that we are more valuable than what our systems say about us, then we must resist those systems that devalue us. And that's the kind of religion I, I wish to see in the world. Yeah, speaking of uh, resisting those systems, there's, there's a quote in here. I just like you to explain, because I think it's um, just a mic drop, just a fire line. Uh, you say, uh, we have the quote, truly I tell to you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. Uh, that, that's Jesus talking to the uh, was it religious, religious elders. elders, right? Uh, you write, I imagine Jesus would look at the problems of poverty and unfair distribution and tell the Latin American priests who justified that injustice, the Marxists are going into the kingdom of God before you. If you find that offensive, then you have an idea of how the chief priests and elders felt about hearing Jesus' parable. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, that that's the meta moment. That's the fourth wall breaking, jimming the camera moment. It was good. Or... It was good. You're, you're just like, no, no, this was a big deal that he said that. You know, this was like a punch in the face. Just in general, you characterize Jesus uh, as a, a god and a man who riots, who is a little uh, uh, pugnacious. And I imagine some people, especially with the backgrounds in America that tend to be soaked in religiosity and Christianity, they're going to get to that line and actually feel a punch because Marxists are like the bad guys. They're the Chinese or something, mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden they're going to be like, oh, it feels like a, when you read that line, it feels like a direct challenge from Jesus, like he's not talking to the Sadducees now. He's he's talking to you, who through your inaction is upholding yeah. these structures of oppression just as much as the Sadducees upheld a sort of oppressive Roman Hellenistic uh, regime. It's good, but what do you mean? <laughs> Give me some context for that. Yeah, uh, right before he says that line, he tells this parable. I love that we're all, we're getting we're getting deep in these parables. Yeah. I haven't been able to do that on some other podcast, <laughs> uh -oh. but. Rob's all about the story. Look, I just figure if, if Jesus is going to take the time <laughs> to riff, we should at least give it some <laughs> some thought, you know? Exactly. So he tells this parable. There's a man with two sons. One of them, he, he tells uh, one of them to go work in the field. And he says, yes, I will. But later doesn't do it. And the other son, he says, go work in the field. And he says, no, I won't. And then later ends up doing it anyway. And then Jesus asks, who was obedient to their father? And they say, uh, I guess it's the one that said he wouldn't do it, but did it anyway. And then he says, the tax collectors or prostitutes are going to the kingdom of God ahead of you. And it's like, uh, I end up comparing what that. What does that mean though? With the fact, it's, it's the fact that there are people outside of this religious system who are doing the holy, godly work of liberation, even though they're and the religious elders were the other son who said they're to do this work and yet either aren't doing anything or are bringing more harm to the people. 
And I think we all know several churches and Christian organizations that can be described that way. And it's like, meanwhile, I think one of the big earth shattering revelations to kids who grow up in fundamentalist households is meeting the people that their church said were bad. Like it could be the queer kids or the Mm. party goers, the stoners and realize like, Oh wait, these people are cool. Also they're good. Also they seem to be like acting more Christian than even my Christian friends do. That's weird. And, uh, and it shows you that, Oh yeah, there's something bigger going on here than, um, preserving all, all this goodness within a particular label or banner or in-group. And and then I also talk about the story of the Young Lords taking over the First United Methodist Church and how they they asked the church if we they can use their space to have uh, breakfast programs for the kids. And the church only was open on a Sunday morning and stayed locked up for the rest of the week. And they said no. And then the Young Lords continued to try. And the Young Lords, for anyone who doesn't know, was a Puerto Rican street gang turned uh, activist group. And they uh, tried to develop relationships with the church leaders and would go to a lot of their meetings. And they still said no. And one one meeting, pe- people in congregation were able to stand up and say something. When one of the Young Lords stood up to say something, the police came and beat the Young Lords up. And then... They decided later that day, okay, we're just going to take this church. And so they broke in, took it over, and started all their programs that they wanted. They had a breakfast program, education program, um, a reading program, all, all kinds of things. And then the, uh, the the church couldn't get them out because they were like, we're here. You, y'all can still uh, have service on Sundays, but we're going to keep serving our community, which is in the center of the city. And it, it lasted about a week or two when the police finally were able to get them out. But and, oh, and they called it the People's Church, which is very interesting because it, it's like that's what the church yeah. should have been doing all along. It's supposed to be. Yeah, that that's should be redundant. Been doing. Exactly. And, and I think of that parable where it's like the people who said they were going to do this work aren't doing anything. And the people who aren't, aren't Christians, aren't clergy, whatever, are doing the work because they don't need it. And the young lords even said, if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a young lord. And I think that's true that's too. Dope. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, the symbolism there being that in each case, there's uh, some amount of disgrace that you wrote. Like the, the father saying like, go out to the fields and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it. But then doing nothing that sort of represents your institutionalists, the people that are, uh, you know, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, the, the people that uphold the status quo, but then actually don't live in accordance with, with God's word. And that is disgraceful. But then the other group are the people that say, no, I'm not going to do that, which in the context that this was being read, you know, many, many years ago, that'd be disgraceful to, to you know, tell the authority to tell your father, no, I'm not going to go out and do that. And yet... Uh, despite this societal stigma or disgrace, when we see who's actually doing the work, uh, it's these people outside the institutions. I, I just thought that was that, that was nice, and I think starts to explain how you can write in a Christian in a book about Christian theology. Uh, the Marxists are going into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> yes, thank you. I was yeah, I was very happy to write that line. 
Um, feels great. So if if we have this this way of of living out Christianity uh, that is based on the Christ that we see in the Bible, the the God who riots, where where exactly in the historical Jesus, where are the indicators that this is a God who riots? How do we know that Jesus isn't mad at all the people that burned down the third precinct police station in Minneapolis? Like, who is the Jesus in the Bible? Who's the titular God who riots? Because people were, you know, unsure at the time. He was a performer. He was getting attention. But you say John the Baptist had to send messengers to just be like, brother, what's your deal? Right? What, mm-hmm. what was Jesus's deal? Yeah, that's yeah. This is what the title is in reference to. The last week of his life, Jesus goes into the temple and stages this political demonstration. And growing up, whenever someone would talk about this story of Jesus flipping tables and pouring out coins, they would frame it as if it was like a spontaneous thing, like like Jesus lost his temper, but. When we look at the exact activities he's doing, he's not just flipping over whatever is in his way. He's flipping over the things that are required for them to buy and sell so that he temporarily puts a stop to the activities of the temple so that everyone would listen to him. And he then says, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. And what's interesting is a den of robbers isn't where people are robbed, but it's where robbers go and hide to avoid the consequences. And so essentially Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of his day of using their religion to hide and avoid the injustices in the world. And so, and I think that's more relevant than ever because we all know Christians who use their religion that way and hide behind their religion and avoid injustice. And it was a protest demonstration turned riot with property destruction flipping tables, looting, which is pouring out the coins and um, freeing the animals that were being bought and sold. And then we look at uh, what was going down in Minneapolis after George Floyd's murder, and they burned this building. And a lot of people were horrified at that, the, the third precinct being burnt. But I remember watching a live stream of that. And at the time, COVID had just started and was going on. And a lot of people were unsure and didn't know exactly how fatal it was, how long it would last. And a lot of people were asking at the time, where is God? Where is God in all this? And as I was watching that live stream with those people celebrating and dancing in front of that burning police precinct, I said, that's where God is. That's exactly where God is to be found right now. uh, 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So when you see... Uh, all those people out there. You talk about going to protest, feeling like church sometimes. You're seeing God on the TV oh, yeah. screen there. Yeah. You're seeing yeah, love. Yeah, some people have said that. Absolutely. Some people have talked about how um, when they go to a protest or a strike, it feels kind of like church, but somehow even more like church than church ever felt. And I think what they're experiencing is um, a group of bodies coming together as one body in solidarity. and it's uh, powerful to be a part of that. And solidarity is should be a priority, I think, when we talk about the ways that we live out the radical Jesus and that message. And so, yeah, that's, that's what the title is in reference to. Um, 
yeah, yes, the, Jesus is the God who riots. And we're seeing today protests, demonstrations, strikes, riots, because those who are experiencing the constraints of the current world are fighting for a new one. And so that's how history works. That's how change happens. And God is a part of that. I like how in the book you point out that spontaneity um, it was not how Christ operated. You know, we, we see with the, the temple, like you said, when you read the, the you know, American Christian line, it's made to be like, oh, he saw, he saw what was going on. There were sacrifices and people were paying for, for animals and he got so mad he, over, he tossed over the table. Or Palm Sunday, you know, he, he was just he just came in on a donkey and people were like, We all love this guy so much that, that he threw they threw palm branches down. And it's just like that isn't what happened. You know, like Jesus Jesus knew what was probably gonna happen. You say that he is he had been tilting towards Jerusalem from the very beginning. And this is important just because it shows that Jesus is taking on institutions, knowing uh, the risk, but it's also important mm -hmm. because like it, it puts, it puts agency, uh, into Christ. It, like he saw that there was a problem that needed confronting. And if he has agency, if he has intent, if he has mens rea, uh, then it means that what he did, not in the main temple in the temple courtyards where people could see, by the way, it wasn't that he had an issue with the, the sacrifices of, of the, the Sadducees or whatever. Uh, he wanted to make a demonstration. Uh, whatever he did in that public demonstration, uh, recounted in two of the gospel writers, right? Uh, he, yeah. Or four. Oh, it was yeah. all four. He, he clearly wanted people to see, and since he is God, probably not sin, right? So when we see Jesus loot, Pour out, I mean, he let mm -hmm. the animals go. He poured out the coins. That is looting. Jesus is looting. Mm -hmm. So if that is not sin, mm -hmm. how? And if that is not sin, <laughs> then what does it mean to do that violence towards an institution, right? That, that is a some sort of harm that obviously Jesus thought was secondary to the harm uh, that the oppressed people around him were currently feeling. Yeah, we, we've got to realize um, that often we're looking at, at things through a lens of crime instead of a lens of harm. And yet uh, there are a lot, so many things that are, that are not harmful, that are a crime. And we see that when every protest happens and the way that police suppress it. And there are also things that are harmful, like police suppression, but aren't a crime. Mm -hmm. And so, it's what's funny about the whole Christian story when people talk about Jesus as innocent, in, in, crucified as an innocent man. We <laughs> call him innocent because we acknowledge that he didn't cause harm, but he was a criminal and crucified as a criminal because he did commit crimes there, especially at, yeah, at we, the Yeah, we don't there. have so, to worry about uh, the sanctity of Roman law in the way that like liberals always are just yeah. like... Well, you, you know, the protest is great, but, he, you know, you did impede traffic. You break don't want to break the law. Yeah. And it's just like, we don't give a shit about Jesus breaking the Roman law, right? That's yeah, far exactly. Removed, that, that one's okay because we know that he was actually trying to do good stuff. But when it's our own, a little, yeah. little more suspect. 
Sorry. And so everyone who was crucified was for the crime of sedition. That's what crucifixion was for. It wasn't just a normal execution. Um, they, had, they had other ways of executing people. If they wanted to put you on a cross on a hill in public for everyone to see, it was a way of saying, this is what happens to those who stand up against Roman rule. And so, and they did it all the time. Jesus, I mean, the, the whole story is like Jesus was between two other guys getting crucified, but likely there was probably a bunch of people that up there with Jesus. He, Jesus was just one of the guys getting crucified that day. And so what's powerful though, is there, there were different messiahs who are people who claim to be the Messiah and claiming to bring the reign of God and the end of the reign of Rome. And when they got crucified and died, their followers would just go home and decide that they were wrong about what the Messiah was. But the difference with Jesus and his followers is that when he was crucified, they went home and decided they were wrong about what the Messiah was. And they determined that actually we're called to be the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ united together liberating ourselves and the debate would be what made them change their mind was it their actual experience of jesus coming back to life was it visions they had of jesus was it a collective reinterpretation over several years that they participated in that's a matter of faith and that could be endlessly debated but that his that shift is historical and that and that shift is probably the most inspiring thing to me about christianity deciding that God isn't going to come down and destroy our oppressors. We have to unite as a body and do the work of liberation. And that is incarnating the God, the God of, of, of the Exodus, the God of Jesus, when he talks about liberating the oppressed and feeding the hungry and serving the poor. That is um, the type of Christianity I'm talking about. Yeah, the, uh, the, the God who knows Pilate's coming in on the Western approach so he's going to get on a, a donkey and come in on the Eastern uh, a, approach just to stick it to Rome. Uh, was that a, was it a Jeremiah passage that just like someone's going to come on, the Messiah will come on a cult while Zechariah, Zechariah while uh, I guess like the emissary of Rome will come with his sword or whatever. It, it didn't mention Rome, but it, it mentioned, yeah, Jesus comes in at the, at the beginning of the week. Through, through the entrance, riding a donkey with people around him, waving leafy branches. And that's a reference to a prophecy from Zechariah, which is interesting. A, a lot of Christians I grew up with would say, see, that's evidence that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that they said would happen. But in reality, and, and I don't think it takes anything away from it when we admit this, in reality, Jesus was a huge fan of the Hebrew prophets, and he just intentionally repeated the things they talked about and and with his actions even repeated the things they did and talked about even his demonstration in the temple about it being a den of robbers that's quoting jeremiah who also did a, a demonstration in the temple and they try to kill him too but he just sort of away. a movie quote guy like the story of him being young and in the temple <laughs> and like doing the hebrew prophet quotes people are like this guy is great and you know what he took that and ran with it so pharisee pharisees exactly. only have themselves to blame on that one could have been a little meaner to that exactly. kid so yeah i think it doesn't take anything away i don't need anybody to predict the future in in my faith it's like it, it's still powerful but it's um he 
so yeah, he's um, kind of enacting that verse from Zechariah riding in on the donkey. And we know that from Josephus, this isn't in my, the text. my favorite, him and Suetonius are, are the big two. <laughs> you had to pick them. Yeah, Roman historian, he, he says at the beginning of every Passover week, Pontius Pilate would come in on a war horse with surrounded by his military with weapons because they would stay uh, by the temple during Passover because there was increased risk of revolt every Passover because they're celebrating God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And so we just know from the gospel reference and the Josephus reference that perhaps they were coming in at the same time. Perhaps it was timed in that yeah, exact way. Jesus says way over Jesus on the other says, side, go get a cult way over on the go, other there's side. There's a cult set up. Go ahead and get it for me. Like they planned this shit to be annoying. They arrived at Jerusalem. Yeah. It's a deliberate lampoon. Yeah, of yeah, the Roman they, they arrived in Jerusalem where the Romans are the most heavy. Cause the Romans are like, this is your holiday where you get wild liberatory thoughts. Right. And then Jesus came in was doing callbacks to, to, aspirational overthrow the oppressor type stuff Mm -hmm. went to the temple went into the main forum area looted and rioted escaped through the mount of olives back to was was it bethany Bethany, uh was only able to do that because there were so many fucking people around him like i love this guy this guy's wild that they couldn't arrest him eventually uh they catch him sneaking around because somebody was sleeping on the job uh Thanks yeah. for that, disciples. Look, Judas got paid, but all of you could have just, you know, have a coffee and get through the night. It's the son of God, for Christ's sakes. Literally. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, despite, and he gets caught. He, he's brought up before the religious authorities. Uh, you know, you have the classic Barabbas thing. He's he, They treat him like a criminal because he was a criminal. He was doing sedition. He literally, if you're like one of those like liberal progressive, like oh, a rule of law, a constitution, if you can keep it, Jesus would be, you would not want Jesus's case if you were a public defender. You would look at that and be like, yeah, sedition, you're getting killed 100%. Next. Like he intentionally uh, put himself, put his body on the line uh, out of love to go against these institutions, right? And that's instructive. But the last thing I want to hit on is just, he gets up on the cross and after siding with the, the powerless and the oppressed and they put their little, look, it's the King of the Jews riff on just like bad moding, bad game uh, on the Messiah here. He has no reason to do so, but he turns down and he looks at the soldiers uh, that are just poking him with a pole arm uh, and he forgives them. And you write about how that, there's something instructive about that particular mode of forgiveness. And you write about forgiveness more broadly in, I think, an interesting way uh, in this book. Because when you talk about taking on structures of power, those aren't abstract things. Like, they are institutions, but those institutions are filled with people. And so, unless you're willing to just, you know, discard the the humanity of huge swaths of people, uh, there has to be some way to incorporate uh, uh, those people that stand in the way of this sort of progress. And you, and you have a quote where you say, forgiveness is not an exercise in power, 
but a foregoing of the exercise of power, giving up the power one has over the other. So what is the role of forgiveness in this idea of, of religious, social change? And uh, how does Jesus, is one of his last words on the cross, how does that play into uh, the way we should forgive our our oppressors? And what is the, the modern Christian trap of forgiving our oppressors that we don't want to engage in? Yeah, I... One of the questions that I had when writing the book was, why does Jesus interact with the people he interacts with? Why does he interact in that way? Which led me to the question, why does Jesus forgive those he specifically forgives? Because growing up, a lot of people understand forgiveness as pardoning harm. And yet, Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about that. He seems to be talking about something bigger. And if it was just about pardoning harm, it would make sense for Jesus to go around f- offering forgiveness to those who are guilty of the most harm. But instead, he goes to those who had the most harm done to them and tells them, you are forgiven. And in the first century Jewish sense, there's sin was understood as bondage and forgiveness was understood as release. Also, both those concepts would have been understood communally. So it was the sin of the community, the sin of society, and society needed to be released. And yet we see in their society and ours that blame for the sins of society always falls on the poor and the oppressed and the sick, like water rolling down the bottom of a hill. And Jesus goes to those who are experiencing the worst of the sins of society. And he releases them from the guilt and the pressure of society. You hinted so, that some of the healing that occurred uh, may or may not have had something to do with that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, what's interesting is that some, yeah, some scholars speculate that the various diseases that Jesus heals maybe may have been a little psychosomatic, <laughs> may have been something that, uh, was brought on because of the traumatic experience of colonization from Rome. And it's like, yeah, maybe that that is what it is. And they just needed to be in community and healed in that way. And he, um, but I think that's powerful looking at forgiveness in that way, where giving people the freedom to stop looking endlessly inward for the cause of their suffering, giving them the freedom to look outward for the causes. And and so those are the people he that Jesus forgives. And then on the cross he says forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And the Roman soldiers are like the only people that he ever said forgive them that weren't in this low marginalized position of society. But the Roman soldiers were also dehumanized, but in a much different this, way. This is pedagogy of the oppressed. Yeah, pedagogy of the oppressed is great. Paul Freire, where he says that the oppressed must free themselves instead of trying to persuade the oppressors from freeing them. And the oppressed must also free their oppressors because their oppressors, as they keep dehumanizing people, dehumanize themselves in the process. And therefore cannot have a grasp on what needs to be done because they've dehumanized themselves. And 
I think about that with Jesus on the cross, knowing that these these guys who are putting me up here, de- constantly dehumanizing others, have dehumanized themselves so to the extent where they don't really know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. And the um, and then I think of like, okay, who are those in society that are in similar positions? Those in places of power, those in um, cops, soldiers, people who um, will not understand the, the effects of their actions unless that power is taken away from them. And so that is... That is how change happens. The oppressors must, the oppressed must free themselves and free their oppressors. Um, we're not going to get everyone to magically change their mind, and we're not going to ever be able to convince the oppressors to treat us better or whatever. That is how it happens. And um, and then when we talk about okay, well, who leads this revolution? It must be those who are from those um, marginal positions who experience the constraints of the sins of society the most because they know the kind of world we need to build the most and we must follow their lead. And then the people who are experiencing a lot of the power and privilege of and wealth from how the world is, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive they, them. They, they can't get a doing. realistic read on things because of their position yeah. and privilege. So if you want to build the new world, you know, like progressive Christians or whatever. There's a lot of people that have nothing but good intent, but uh, absent the sort of leadership by people who uh, exist in those certain material conditions and can see the problems then, don't have the privilege of not having to see them, uh, absent their leadership, there's no way they can get a read. They're, they're looking through the veil. And so that's the sort of forgiveness you have to, that you have to offer. How do we, though, forgive oppressors, you say, like the police and that stuff, without falling into that trap of just excusing harm? Like, what does it mean, though, to forgive police? What does it mean to forgive oppressive institutions? Well, with understanding of forgiveness as release, I'm really talking about we need a release of oppression. Like, there's a lot of talk right now, like, uh, the... People just need to forgive the police. People need to um, just love their enemies. People just need to. Um, the Christians yeah, showed that. up and at the, the George like, Floyd site to like play music and encourage people oh, yeah. to forgive the police their wrongs because it's what Jesus would yeah. do. Jesus would be like, hey, I mean, they kind of got a point. I was going to say, like, yeah, you know, Jesus walking around telling uh, Romans crucifying people, like, hey, man, you know, there's only some of them are bad apples, but for the most part, they're, it, you, you got to forgive them. But he did forgive those Roman soldiers, so maybe they did. Fuck. I don't, I don't know. But the, the, yeah. the Christians showed up at George Floyd and were just like, we need peace and civility. We have a God of peace. Right. Uh, and those sorts of things were not. That's, that's such a tiny, yeah. that's such a tiny, narrow understanding of forgiveness. Because the spirit of forgiveness is to release people from the harm that's being done to them. And then after that, there can be another element of forgiveness where they let go of their resentment of the people who were oppressing them. But we need to let go of the oppression. And so it's like you could have your friend pressing their boot into your neck and you could say, I forgive you. It's all good. But I don't think you'll really mean it. 
until the boot is lifted. And so that's, yeah, that's really what I'm talking about when it comes to forgiveness. It's like, we let's, I don't, yeah, I, I don't have any time for conversations of um, pardoning police and just loving them and getting over it uh, or pardoning America, pardoning capitalism. It's like, let's stop. Let's stop the oppression we're experiencing. Then I could be like, all right, I'm good. We're, we're all good now. Um, we can reconcile, but it's only after we end that oppression. That needs to be priority. Yeah. Last parable. You talk about uh, forgiveness using the prodigal son uh, story and sort of forgiveness being a, a, you know, a way of reaching back in time. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty heavy stuff. How, how does that play into it? So what's funny about the, the prodigal son parable is when the son comes back, it's like, yeah, typical story. Son uh, gets his father's inheritance early, leaves, blows On whores, the Bible and then comes stipulates. Back. On prostitutes. <laughs> I like that they put that in there just so you knew that the prodigal son was cool. You know? Yeah, the prodigal son definitely <laughs> yeah. That's in the Bible. And, the, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> Mark or whoever was just like, make sure people know, because they're going to go, how do you spend all that money? And we'll say prostitutes, and they'll be like, yeah, that'll go quick. We got to meet people where they're at, meet the readers, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he, so he comes back uh, wanting to just be a servant, and instead the father welcomes him back fully and puts on his old robe, puts on a ring, and gives him a huge feast. And it's like, the father knows that if, saying the words, I forgive you, isn't enough. Like saying, saying it's all good between us isn't enough. We need to like fully change your conditions so that it appears as if nothing bad ever even happened. And I talk about that in comparison with the fact that people are saying we just need to get over white supremacy. And it's like, it's still here. Like it, we're still clothed in it. It's, it's like we, um, that's not us stopping talking about it. Isn't going to get rid of it. We need to change our material conditions until our conditions look as if white supremacy isn't a thing, but we're not anywhere close to that. It lives still within our institutions, our, our education institutions, our healthcare, um, housing it still lives in our institutions. And so it's like, um, yeah, we need to seek the most radically expansive reconciliation that we can if we're really about that. And that requires us changing the condition. Yeah, you said the, the father of the prodigal son in taking him back, if he didn't actually fix the material conditions of the son, basically going back in time and making it a rate forgiveness that erases the, the slight, that makes it as if it never happened, even though it did, you know, you're conscious of it. Uh, but you let it go, you, you remunerate the, the injured, and you bring it up to a world that sort of, uh, it, it seeks to ameliorate the harm. You talk about it in terms of reparations and all that. Uh, in the book, you talk about the prodigal son's father. If he had just brought the son back and been like, I forgive you in my mind palace, you may do as you ask, which yeah. is work essentially as my like stable hand slash slave. You spend all your money. It is what it is. I feel really bad about it. I welcome you back and I wish for the best, but I'm not going to do anything materially to make you whole, right? To, to make you like your brother. 
Uh, if he had done that, that would be very much like the idealist. Well, you know, I definitely support Black Lives Matter, but I'm not, you know, reparations is pretty insane. I don't think we should tear down the institutions that uh, uphold white supremacy or create these problems in the first place. The materialist or the material making right of things being part of forgiveness uh, is saying that something bad happened. I'm forgiving you mentally, but now let's remove the harm in the world for that bad thing happening. I think that was a nice takeaway from that, that parable. Yeah. Thank you. It's um, it's a big deal. And then what's funny too, is the other, the second half of the parable is the other son sees them partying, having a big old feast. And he's like, and he, and he's mad. And then the father comes out to talk to him and he says, like, I've, I've always been here. I've always been loyal. And um, and you never even like cooked a goat for me and my friends. And then the father says, what I have has always been yours this whole time. But your your brother was lost and now he's found. And then it just ends with that like tension. And I, I read that. And, and in talking about reparations, I also talk about, like you said, those people who are like, uh what uh, reparations giving them money and resources and com- communities that will actually help them uh survive what about us what, and it's <laughs> like well white people have always experienced what the what we've always had to give and it's like of course there's uh white working class people that struggle but their skin color never contributed to that struggle and so yeah, you're I, still um, wearing the pinky yeah. ring. That's why we don't have to give you the yeah. pinky ring. That's why we have to give the guy who's yeah. dead and is now alive the pinky ring to get it back to fair. Exactly. Yeah. But in our case, of course, when it comes to reparations, um, there isn't a, it's a type of reconciliation that has never existed before that we would experience um, if we were to battle white supremacy and um, abolish racist institutions. And in our situation, there is no father that we can, that can come down and make it all better for us. In our situation, we have to do the work ourselves. And um, yeah, there's a lot of work. Well, given the fact that early Christian colonialism and otherization is what led to a lot of these institutions just upholding uh, another version of that, eh, we probably have some obligation to do it as Christians anyway. So uh, this book definitely encourages you after thinking about this stuff to want to get out there and, and do something. Uh, so I just, I just think it's mm. an awesome book and I hope every person, I'm going to recommend this to everyone. I hope every person uh, reads this, every leftist, every on the back, there's like interest groups that might be into this. I won't read it. I won't read them, but it's just like, this should be read by everyone, not just uh, Christians who are questioning or, or politically active left people. I just think it makes a lot of sense the way that. Yeah, I sent you the advanced reader copy that publishers yeah. give to like press people, journalists, people. But um, yeah, and, and the book is basically it's basically the same. There's just a few typos that got changed. A plus author photo, by the way. You picked the right one there. You, you, that, Thank that's, you. That's a guy. He's got some answers. He's he's ready to rap with you. I think it's <laughs> awesome. I think it's great. Okay, this this is my uh, uh, speed round. Uh, we're getting out of here. Number okay. one, you say you're okay. into Italian autonomous stuff now. What tendy is that? What are, what are you rocking on now? Let me get that niche shit. I want that that Henry Rollins of ideology 
What are the weird? What are the weirdos on now? Italian autonomous. Bifo. You know Bifo. Bifo these nuts. Wait, is, <laughs> oh my <laughs> god. Yeah, no, that's. It, was that not the right answer? Felt like it was. Oh my god! Wait, what? It's uh, yeah, Franco or Bifo. Bifo's his nickname, Franco Berardi. He wrote a book called. Um, wait, let me look it up. Soul, Soul of Work. The soul, the soul at work that um, I really like, but, but it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm sort of a, like a council communist, whatever, but it's like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm inspired by more of that and of a uh, communist stuff right now, Marxist stuff right now of uh, people who are talking about the ways that capital has evolved talking about i love bifo talks about the the precariat instead of the proletariat because Mm. there's a lot of jobs that we experience today that don't fit in the proletariat stuff mark's talked about um but we are living we we are um in the position where the class position we're in because we live precariously with our like five side gigs and um it's like it's interesting stuff it's just like it feels like just an evolution of those ideas but yeah, there's something. I like that. I like the idea of a precarious because then you don't have to have. Look, I, Mark's great and everything, but sometimes people get so hung up on like word definitions and semantics, and it's just like, mm-hmm. oh, is this particular mm-hmm. job does that make someone a member of the proletariat? It's like, <laughs> yeah, if, if you have to like look at your bank account to decide whether or not you need to uh, eat, <laughs> you know, like that precarious probably yeah. better. Uh, second thing. You say in the book, uh, you write that hybridity makes some people uncomfortable, but I'm used to it. White Christians often tell me that I can't be politically leftist while being a Christian. And white leftists often tell me that I can't be a Christian while being politically leftist. Does that happen a lot? What's that like? Is that a, is that a thing you, is that a, is that a thing you face? Cause I, I look, I can definitely see like, uh, the, like, uh, white nerd uh new atheist ass marxist i i i can imagine that guy in my head but generally uh, most leftist spaces are just sort of as i've experienced them of course they feel just very permissive uh of religious stuff like they just don't care you know uh, what do you mean what's it like living in that hybrid place uh how do you feel like rejected or like you don't fit on on either side well I mean, there's a, when you're, the more public you become, the more annoying guys are in your oh, life. Oh, okay. So I'm seeing it. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's part of it. But also, um, a lot of people are, are just still dealing with trauma that they had from the church that they grew up in. And they see me, who's claiming to be a leftist and still a Christian. And it's like, you're, you're preserving the institutional power that oppressed me when I was younger. And it's like, part of it is they don't, I don't think they fully understand that those churches don't like me either. And then also um, they don't understand all, there's so many other branches of Christianity that um, aren't, have nothing to do with evangelicalism. And so, but I don't feel like I'm supposed to tell them that I just feel like, uh, yeah, let let them blow off steam and they're going through it and hope they, they get better one day. It's like, because they need to go through that processing and healing themselves. And so, yeah, I'll get that. Sometimes I'll get, um, 
and then yeah, I'll get Christians like telling me stuff like that. I need to be, I need to be conservative or whatever. Um, challenging me in different ways, especially on TikTok lately. It's like my, a lot of, I have a few TikToks where just the whole thread of comments is just people arguing with each other. And it's like, okay, y'all, y'all are bringing views to it. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea that if you're a Christian, you can't have left politics, that makes sense. I think only in the dynamic of like the cultural stuff. If you see the world as non-Christian, if the church yeah. is inside and the world and it's filthy worldliness is on the outside, then incorporating progress, ideas that are out there in the world that are maybe more compassionate, are still ideas from the world. And so you get that thing where it's like, you talk about your friend, uh, Labor Kyle, right? You can see his journey in two very different ways. And one of them is from the perspective of, uh, we can't be a progressive. They want to bring in degeneracy and, and the gays and, and, you know, like erode the kingdom of heaven uh on earth which is a strain that's just like i i don't get as for the the leftists i could see that too right like you come in and you're like hey guess what i think needs to be merged with leftism the hegemonic i the the, the hegemonic religion (laughs) that has literally oppressed you the whole time and i think hey fuck you buddy Please get that out of here. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Now you can't go like, wait, 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 wait. You're like David Blaine trying to get someone to stop for your card trick. Like, no, 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 wait, this is going to be, it's going to be good. I know it's, I know it's hegemonic. It's not the hegemonic view of Christianity. I'm on, we're siding with the oppressed. Can't really get all that out. So I, I, I get where you're coming from there. Also, I think there's a couple different types of Christian leftists, even throughout history. I think, um, they're the, the Christian leftists that the more idealist types who just really take Jesus seriously and believe, okay, this is, we need to build a socialist society because we take our faith seriously. This is what it looks like in, in the outer work. And then there's Christian leftists that are like more materialist, which I'm, I'm more this kind, which is we need, we just need to have materialist answers to materialist questions. When and, and when it comes to questions like how do we structure the economy, we don't need spiritual or religious answers or theological answers for that. We need materialist answers, figuring it out according to historical materialism and the way we structure society. And uh, but but once those questions are settled, there's a lot more questions that can't be answered with materialism. Um, like what is all this? How are we connected? What is consciousness? What is, where are we going? It's like, um, that's, that's more the type, although I, I include both of those kinds of Christian leftist ideas in the book. Um, but, but yeah, that's personally where I'm at. So it's like when people do feel like, um, it doesn't make sense for me to still be calling myself a Christian. It's like, we're, we're on the same team when it comes to materialism but i also have this part of myself and so do hell of a lot of people that uh will you're like buddy i'm a christian but i've rejected more strains of christianity than you're even aware of if you think you don't like christianity i've been knocking down that is i've I've rejected christianity like you can't even like the blade runner speech but for your you say Mm -hmm. you had the inception through denominations like well then i was this and then i was at first oh, I said yeah. I couldn't really be a Methodist or whatever. And then I said I probably shouldn't be a Protestant. And then I said, like, you had to 
actually get the boot out of all of these to discover a Christianity that seems to be in line with Christ. Beautiful. All right. Uh, very last thing, fun thing here. What, and I'll think about it, this is important. What is the most cringe, embarrassing, dork-ass way you have ever prayed or worshipped? <laughs> here's here's why, because there was a beautiful verse by the, what was the young French lady that wrote about God? Marguerite Perret. Yeah, there was a great uh, quote in the book that reminded me of this young pope uh, TV show on Showtime or HBO where he gives a, a similar speech about God being love and peace and it being inside all of us already and we can see it in each other and, you know, very beautiful stuff. But that scene in The Young Pope ends with him on his knees with his arms, like, open to the sky, praying, praying really hard. And it always makes me laugh a little bit because, like, visually, literally what we are meant to say is, damn, that guy's praying the hell out of that prayer, you know? And it reminded me that like when I was young and you really have this rudimentary view of who God and, and Jesus is, I would want God to see me like really nailing the prayer, you know, like just like an honors uh, kid. So I, I remember one time I, I took swimming lessons at the International Swimming Hall of Fame and I tried to do the underwater arms up prayer because I saw it on TV like whoa, this guy's so intense. He doesn't even care that he's drowning. He's that connected to Christ. Like, like, like somebody was going to walk by and be like, this guy prays. is fucking crazy, man. Like, don't <laughs> mess with him. Uh, I, I remember that and I got like douche chills. Uh, did, can you remember oh, yeah. any particularly like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Um, the one I thought of was when I was little, little kid at elementary school, I was, um, I guess there was there people were saying there was a revival at our church. I'm still not sure exactly what was going on. Uh, looking back, it seems like we had a guest preacher who stayed for like a couple of weeks and they called that a revival. I don't know. It was weird, but they were doing a lot of uh, like worship services and praying and they were slaying people in the spirit, which happens a lot in Pentecostal churches. And I, the, I was in kids' church, and they're saying, "Okay, we're all gonna go and be in the big church tonight um, to like worship with them." And we're like, "Cool!" And we, yeah, we did that. I think a few weeks in a row, and everyone would get in lines. There would be like four or five, six uh, people up front, and there would be lines leading to each of those people, and they would like pray for you. And then with their hand on you sometimes, or maybe hand on your head. And then eventually what it's supposed to be is you feel the spirit slay you and you fall back on the ground and then you lay there for a while. And it's like, yeah, it's supposed to be the spirit. I've seen some cases where somebody just pushes people, but it's also like, I'm sure a placebo thing where you know, you're supposed yeah. to fall. So no, it, fall I, I can answer that. It's, it uh, is. It's it's not a it's not like yeah. well I mean I guess it is like a keto. You're not actually putting a chi blast of of Pentecostal power into people's foreheads and knocking them. I was always so socially anxious when but I it's saw also, that shit. I'm like, please don't make me go up there. I know I have to fall if if they slap me or whatever. It, it always. There's also the possibility that you're having an ecstatic experience and that your brain 
really is at this weird level where it does make you fall. That's I will also say, possible. actually, this might be the answer, the most cringe way I've, I've prayed. Uh, for like a year in college, I discovered a, a, a PDF that I imagined contained sacred tantric rituals. Uh, but it, it, it turns out, oh, uh, yeah, no, it, look, I was like 19 at the time. But it uh, uh, turns out if you hold your nut long enough like Sting, you're going to see some wild shit. Uh, and I, I swear one time I was like, I don't know, man. I, I think uh, by clenching my asshole, I, I sort of saw God, which A, what an a, a embarrassing sex dork teenager thing to think. But I will say I I very quickly realized that that doesn't, I'm not sure this was a legitimate prayerful experience, although probably closer to like the old saints. I think that a lot of when you look at the saints who like saw demons or devils or apparitions and all that, that is just guys like never nutting and going insane and seeing shit. Right. So like in a way, I'm I was kind of like I was kind of in line with all of the saints and the beatified. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. There's um, also just the gift of neurobiological evolution has enabled our brain to do all kinds of things make us see things in certain moments create certain conditions where we feel taken over by a presence um that's just what our brain can do and that's i think really cool also with some people have theories that some of those mystics had epilepsy and maybe that had a makes part to makes play total too, sense there's a lot yeah, I'm 100% in the camp that if you just like, and they're always fasting or they're always in like the dark and in isolation, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, you're going to see some shit after, after a while. So I don't <laughs> know, maybe that PDF did lead me to a, a more historic interpretation of, of Christ. So I, I was saying that the, so people were being slain <laughs> yeah. and I was, all the kids were like excited about it. It seemed like a fun thing. And so what we would do every week would, we would get slain lay there for a bit and then go back in line to get slain again. And we would just do that over and over. And then when we'd be in kids church, we'd like brag to each other how many times we've gotten, I've gotten slain five times. I've gotten slain seven times. It's like, Oh my God. I think that's the cringe part for me Hell that we're yeah. like bragging about how many just, times. Just just doing, slain. treating it like a water slide, like the Holy Exactly like a water slide. That's the I wrote the Holy analogy. Spirit seven times today. The only, the only thing more cringe than that yeah. is, uh, I know you know what I'm talking about here. The knowing the adults doing the slang also did a like pregame huddle prayer because in my church there were pregame prayers for everything. We were just like, all right, guys, we're about yeah. to do Sunday service. Let's go ahead and and everyone come on in here, huddle up. Let's just make sure that we are godly and God, please put put uh, the anointed oil on our foreheads and the, the light of the Holy Spirit on our tongues that our message may be received. Let us give everything in our human capacity to be one. Like, like the everything we did at our church had a setup, and it's just like I think God's already backing us on this one. Like we're we're doing a ninety minute production about the importance of having Jesus in your life. I'm an anthropomorphized goat representing the prophet Elijah. I think we can just assume we've got the trade winds. You know, I just I, I love that everything has to be has to be prayed on. But I I don't know. I was, I, yeah. I never spoke in tongues. You ever do? I never. I didn't like singing in church uh, or dancing around. We we had motions. Did you have motions? I didn't either, but I did for it. the songs. Like every song had hand motion, like, Lord, I lift your name. And you had to like, nah. as a kid, there was some of that, but 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't like uh, worship um, or sing. I, I mean, specifically the singing part because for some reason I don't know what happened, but ever since I was a little kid, whenever I'd be standing there, I would start yawning uncontrollably, <laughs> and then and then it would like I wasn't bored, I wasn't tired. It was just like this physical thing that I couldn't stop, and then I would sometimes end up getting a headache um, from yawning so much. I don't know what it is. Maybe it has something to do with like the <laughs> oxygen in the room when everyone's singing. I don't know, but it was just weird. Yeah. 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 It, you know, kids used to come to my Christian school and then leave after like a month. And I'd be like, oh, why did you leave the school? They'd be like, you guys are fucking weird <laughs> in there. And looking back, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess we were. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Damon, thanks. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for giving me uh, as much time as, as you did. I wish you nothing but success with this book. Yeah. I'm going to pitch this to everyone I know. I wish it were around Thank you. when I was younger. So often, mm. you know, there's a, there'll be a problem, you know, a societal issue or something, and you'll just, it's reductive sometimes where you go like, oh, it's not my job to educate you. Go read XYZ, and it's always some long anarchist reading list. It's just like impossible to get through. This really does serve the purpose of an object where when people ask about like left Christianity and its place in the world and its viability as sort of a moral religious idea, uh, I can just point them to this book. It's fucking great. People should read this book for the rest of my life. I can go like, Oh, I don't have to explain all this shit. Just read this book. It'll take like two hours. It's sick. <laughs> so thank you for that and keep doing thank what you. you're doing, man. Yeah. I appreciate right. that. Anything to, to tell the nice people before we click off? Uh, yeah, uh, check out DamonGarcia.com. Got a bunch of links up there. Get, go get my book, The God Who Riots, available anywhere that sells books. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at WhoIsDamon. Send me a message. Be like, hey, I heard you on Dumb and Awful. Go on, go on his TikTok and just regardless of what he posts, just reply <laughs> wrong. And just let nature take its course. Nature is beautiful. <laughs> we can see love everywhere. Yeah, if, if you're ever in the mood for arguing, there's plenty of people to argue with in my yeah. TikTok comments, YouTube comments too. I always, I, I've joked before, like people get double the content when they watch my YouTube videos where they could, the video itself and then reading all the arguments in Just the comments. Just go to the comments, put uh, brother ass equals based, Aquinas equals cringe, and let, let the Lord mm. dictate what happens next. All right, Hell thanks yeah. everybody. We're out of here. Thank you, Damon. <laughs>